Howdy, I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and I am so excited to bring you these episodes week after week. This week's episode is a, quite special to my heart. When I started the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast over a year ago now, I made a list of dream guests that I wanted to have on, and the person I'm interviewing today was towards the top of that list, and I just felt like I needed a lot of interviews under my belt to even reach out. I did finally reach out and he agreed to come on and it really set off a deep dive into his work. Uh, my guest today to, to tell you who it is, is Daniel Vitalis. And I have been listening to Daniel Vitalis in one form or another for at least five years. I tried to trace it back, and that's probably the longest that I have really been listening to anybody that has been on the podcast, been listening to and enjoying their work. And so I had a really good foundation for what Daniel's work is about as it's traversed his first podcast, Rewild Yourself, which is still there for anybody that wants to explore it, into his next podcast, Wild Fed, which just wrapped up their last episode the week that we recorded this, and into the Wild Fed TV show, which is truly fantastic, a, a stunning storytelling effort around what it means to hunt and gather and build food around community. Daniel has a reverence for the natural world that is truly unparalleled, and this comes through in the storytelling of his work, whether it's his podcasts or you can see it in Wild Fed, when, especially when he's hunting animals and pauses to have this moment after he has shot and killed an animal where he is just there in awe of that physiology and in awe of the relationship that we as humans have to life on earth. And I've always respected him, not only in the spaces of hunting and foraging and human health, but also in the way that he thinks about the world uh, from a historical and anthropological lens and the way that he has sort of put together his own philosophy. For this episode, I did a very deep dive looking at interviews that he had done and as, as a guest, but also looking deep into some of the episodes of Wild Fed and Rewild Yourself, some new to me, some that I have really enjoyed in the past and wanted to revisit. 
I had a moment before recording where I was concerned that I had so overprepared that I might end up with the yips where you just kind of drop the ball because you have too much floating around in your head. And I don't believe that I did that in this episode, but I was just so excited to connect with Daniel and I experienced something that was really interesting following our interview, which was a sort of deep sadness. I had so enjoyed my immersion into Daniel's brain over the weeks preceding this episode that I wasn't sure where I was going to go next. And I loved that because it actually provided a real guiding force for, I think, the topics that are lighting me up as the host of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast and some guests that we might have on next. I encourage everyone to seek out Daniel's work, whether it is through podcasts or through his TV show or through his company, Sir Thrival. And I mentioned this at the end, but Daniel has owned a supplement company since 2008, Sir Thrival. And my husband and I have used various things from Sir Thrival over the years, used their pine pollen and their chaga, their vitamin D3, as well as their elk antler supplements and really enjoyed them. And I think that what he is doing in terms of sourcing and the way that he thinks about things is is very in line with what I want for my body. They just came out with a fully wild foraged black walnut protein powder that is certainly worth checking out. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I so enjoyed recording it. I think that we could have gone for many hours. Hopefully, Daniel will grace us with a round two, but we dive into some pretty deep topics head first. Now, for those of you that are listeners of the podcast, you'll know that I often skip backstories with guests that have been generous with sharing their backstory on other podcasts, and I will link to some of those podcasts where they share about that in the show notes. So we just kind of dive into the deep end, and it is the very deep deep end of the pool. We get into some very big topics around what it means to be human, but also some things that are a little topical and maybe even a little bit taboo in today's world. I encourage you to give it a listen, listen all the way through and hear us out as we explore some of these concepts around how our food makes us human and how the connections that we have to our food and to other incredible storytelling nutrients within the the human sphere, whether that's birth or death or the way that we relate in community, can have on the, the form and function of what Daniel calls the domesticated human. And what it might mean to to get a little bit more wild. I am incredibly grateful to Daniel for his work over the years. I'm going to link to a couple of my favorite episodes of his. And I'm really looking forward to having some more conversations that are very much in this vein. I am enjoying this thread immensely. And so I, I hope that you are too. 
we always do a little bit of business here right before we dive into the actual interview. And I just want to encourage if these conversations have been impactful for you the way that I know they've been impactful for me, if you could leave a rating and review of the podcast, it just helps it helps people find the podcast and know what they're getting into and get excited that other people are excited. We have over 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts. We're getting close on Spotify. So I would so appreciate this little act of reciprocity. As always, if you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts and shoot me a little screen grab of it, I would love to send you a thank you note in real life so that we can connect here in the physical plane. Without further ado, I want to bring you this episode with Daniel Vitalis, and I do just really reiterate to seek out his work as a speaker, as a podcaster, as a TV host, just as a human, and let it inspire you to go forth and find meaning and story and connection within your food. Thank you so much for tuning in each week. And without further ado, here is Daniel Vitalis. I feel really honored that I'm actually catching you in this space where you just released the last episode of Wild Fed and you're in this transition. And I think throughout preparing for this interview, I thought a lot about transitions and transitory spaces, uh, mm. both, both for for humans and for society and for some of these skills that that you and I are are so passionate about whether it's hunting and foraging or on my end butchery and farming and i actually i pulled a quote to kind of get us started off from a book that i think you and i both have enjoyed and is is pretty salient for where we are yeah. today and so this is from the fourth turning and it says more recently, the West began using technology to flatten the very physical evidence of natural cycles. With artificial light, we believe we defeat the sleep-wake cycle. With climate control, the seasonal cycle. With refrigeration, the agricultural cycle. And with high-tech medicine, the rest recovery cycle. Triumphal linearism has shaped the very style of Western and especially American civilization. Before, when cyclical time reigned, people valued patience, ritual, the relatedness of parts to the whole, and the healing power of time within nature. Today, we value haste, iconoclasm, the disintegration of the whole into parts, and the power of time outside nature. Mm. As I collected a lot, I was really struck by the way that you talk about our relationship with the natural world and what it means to reclaim that relationship mm. in a time where there is maybe a bifurcation of this natural world that we are inextricably linked to and this built world that mm -hmm. continues to take us further away from that relationship. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I love that. I love that whole quote because so many things that we do are like a sine wave. So many things in the world are like a sine wave, but then so much of what we do is like a flat line. And it's so obvious because, you you know, when I think flat line, I think of like a person dead yes. on a, in a hospital room, you know, but when I, when I look at a thermostat and it says 72 degrees, it's like chart that over the course of somebody's day. And it's just always 72 degrees. And then you go outside and it's like, Hey, it starts off at 30 and it rises up right now to probably 52 
and it's going to go back down to 30 and it's a sine wave. And it's like, Hey, wait a second. How come in indoors, we make it a flat line and outside it's a sine wave. And then we do that just about everything that we can. We're always trying to, you know, you look at the surfaces we walk on, you know, go outside and the surface is like a sine wave and you come inside and the surface is flat. And, and it's like the, the last 10,000 years of human existence have been about it's almost, I, I sometimes think of somebody who's really angry at their mom. And so their whole life, you know, maybe I'm speaking to myself here, but <laughs> it's like your whole life be, can, can become a rejection of her ways or her, you know, you're mad at your mom. And so yeah. it's like a species, we're like mad at our mom. Mm. And so for 10,000 years, we're like, well, we'll conquer you. I'll show you, mom. I'm sick of it getting cold at night. I'm tired of tripping on rocks. I'm going to make everything perfect, just how I want it to be. And then it's like we're coming into that stage of life right now where you kind of, some of us are going like, oh, wait a second. Now I understand what mom was doing. You know, where that happens oh, yeah. where you're like, oh man, my mom wasn't as stupid as I thought. I was stupid. Oh no. So some of us are going, how do we reincorporate some of these natural principles? But at that same time, so if we can, we could call those last 10,000 years like the creation of the built environment. Mm -hmm as opposed to the natural environment. But now as we go into the digital environment, we're standing at a precipice because those of us who don't want to go down that digital road, I mean, we're all like, we're all going down the yeah, digital we're road. We're here for in sure. the digital world. Right. Yeah, yeah. I just took off my heart rate monitor a few minutes ago. It's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're like a it. cyborg, you know what I mean? So, so we're in it. So, um, but that said, some of us are like, hey, the metaverse doesn't sound like a place I want to live. So we're, we're looking not not at just re-immersing back into the built environment, but like, hey, how do we start to get back into the natural environment? But then there's this other contingent of people who are really excited about going down that road. So that's that bifurcation that you mentioned. But I think um, a lot of us are trying to figure out how to get some of that sine wave rhythm back because, because we, we're realizing that our mental health, physical health, emotional health, psychic health, spiritual health is all dependent on feeling like we're part of a community and not just a community of people, but a community of life. And that's, I think, what the natural world represents for us. You know, something I often talk about is that our biology is having this constant conversation with our environments. And, mm -hmm. and I've heard you relate this often in looking at maybe the way that a chihuahua might be perfectly fit for its environment. And so mm -hmm. in what ways as we begin to change our environment, as homo sapiens, are we actually changing what it means to be human? And I think that yeah. so much of that is that interaction with that sine wave, with the periodicity and the cyclical nature of things. And when you take us and you put us in a static space, or you put us in a very linear space, it's going to begin to shift what we are. And I think, I think that there's really no predicting what that could look like the further down the digital environment we go. You might be able to predict what it looks like, I think. I mean, I do think it does look a lot like that gray alien um, kind of iconic image that we've, mm. we all grew up with. <clears throat> could be really representative of where we're headed. But I think to your point, we there's this missing piece in the conversation that's happening right now because it feels like we have access to so much information now and yet there's like big gaping holes in it yeah. and one of the holes in the average person's understanding of the world is relates to domestication and so so much of my work in the past is focused on this idea of human domestication hence why you brought up chihuahuas because i want to always point out that chihuahuas are wolves 
um, <laughs> that have been domesticated. And right now we're in this stage, this piece of history where a lot of writers have uh, proposed this idea that we're evolving into something new, some kind of technological ape, like we're, we're on this evolutionary path. It's unfolding in front of us and human 2.0 is emerging. And I think this is um, incorrect. I think that what we're really seeing is that we're a domesticated ape. We come from a stronger stock in the way that the Chihuahua comes from stronger stock. It comes from the gray wolf. And so as do all dogs. So for your listeners who haven't heard me talk about this before, all dogs are gray wolves that have been domesticated. And so there isn't any other canine lineage in our domesticated dogs. So before I understood that fully, I thought, well, maybe there was coyotes or African wild dogs or, you know, other species of canids that had, you know, that we had drawn dogs out of, but turns out, no, uh, they all come from gray wolves, not red wolves, you know, not Mexican wolves, specifically gray wolves. So all of our dogs are gray wolves, but it would be, it'd be tough to argue that they're evolved gray wolves. I think it's a more accurate to say that domestication is a degenerative process. If I had to pick between it being evolution or de degeneration. So the animals that you guys raise there on your farm through domestication, they are changed in such a way that they are adapted to the built and stewarded environment. And without you guys there, they would become prey really, really rapidly. Because yes. of course, the trade is we will offer you protection from all the things that could get to you in exchange that you give up all the things that you have that protect you now. So the Chihuahua gives up that incredible bite, that super fine wit, that commitment to a pack of other canids, that ability to hunt, all the things that it did in the wild as a wolf, it gives those up in order to live with us. And then we in turn take care of its needs. And so, you know, is that evolution or is that degenerative? And when we look at plants, you know, it's such a similar thing because something I've tried to point out over the years is I'll always say to people, why doesn't your lettuce become an invasive species in your yard? And here you are putting it in the soil. If I came to your house, you had no dandelions and I put dandelions in your lawn, you've got them for the rest of your life there and, and you'll die with them and someone else will, will live there with them later on. Yes. You, you won't get rid of them. They, they are a wild species and they are so competitive in their environment. And I mean that in a positive way. They're so good at competing that they will outcompete other species and they will get a foothold and you will never get rid of them. But your lettuce can't do that. Why? You know, a wild lettuce can. You know, I've got wild lettuces out in my yard here and they're very hardy. But if I brought a lettuce and I planted it out there, the next day herbivorous insects have mowed it down or, you know, other larger herbivores will come in and eat it and it's gone. It needs to be fenced off. It needs to be watered. I always joke it needs its soil fluffed. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like everything has to be just right. And even then a lot of people can't really get them to grow. Like look at all the people who fail at gardening because it's like th these plants aren't that hardy, generally speaking. I mean, obviously there's exceptions to this, but I would argue again that it's degenerative. So as we domesticate other things, we in turn probably are really the first domestic, you know, we often say that the dog is the first domesticated species. So our evidence is like 15,000 plus years mm -hmm. of this with dogs, the furthest it goes back way before plant domestication that we know about at least currently. But I'd argue we were domesticated in tandem. 
and the process has been degenerative. And we, we like the lettuce or the chihuahua, have we need our built environment in order to survive now. Most of us, and this is so evident because all you have to do is just watch any survival show and you see, of which there are so many now because we find that, I think, because we find it so interesting. Yeah. I'm sure if dogs made television, they would like to watch shows about dogs that go try to live like wolves because that would be fascinating because they would know inherently there's something not right about me. Well, I'm not, I'm built for something more than this, but I, I'm not capable of it. There's sort of that sense. There's a void. So there's something missing, right? Like you yeah. have all of these genetic programs and then you, you don't have any way to use them or access them even. So we like to watch somebody go try to survive in nature. It's fascinating to us because we know in the deep subconscious, man, if I was ever without this built environment and that tether back to civilization, I don't know if I could make it. But then we also know, wait a second, that's what we did for three and a half million years in hominin evolution. That's how we lived. So why how we got suddenly here. can't we do that? Right. So we are like the Chihuahua and the Chihuahua, as you pointed out, is very, it's not that it's um, not adapted to its environment. It is, its environment is the built environment, but it's no longer adapted to the natural world because of something called artificial selection. So in nature, natural selection, of course, is dominant along with sexual selection by females. And that that shapes species over time and their phenotypes. But artificial selections where we go, no, 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 I don't want it to come out like a wolf. I want it to be long and short-legged so I can put it down a hole and it can pull a gopher out. So I'm going <laughs> to pick the animals that have the longest bodies and the shortest legs and I'll keep breeding those artificially, making them select each other. So we take over the role of natural and sexual selection and then we shape species out. So we've done that with a couple dozen animals and, and dozens and dozens of plants. And we're, we're quite good at that. And it did incur a huge adaptive advantage in a sense, because here we are now, we've taken over the whole plant. We win. We won the human race. Uh, we're winners. And then now we're in the situation where we're degenerating really rapidly. So we have all of this incredible health and medical technology that can't keep up with the speed of degenerative diseases, which we call degenerative diseases, yet these authors are like, we're evolving into something better. It's like, <laughs> then, but the names of the diseases we have are degenerative. We are degenerating. So this is really bizarre to me that the, people don't seem to grasp it. And they, and, and they don't necessarily understand like when they step into the supermarket and when they, when they walk through any built environment, most of the species they encounter are not species you would find in the natural world. No, and and you've been very good at describing in the past that they are all that many are just the same species. That there is an illusion of mm -hmm. diversity there. And I, you know, I wonder is I hadn't thought about that in terms of degenerative diseases. I think that's a that's a really great point. And I have to wonder, and I've been thinking a lot about at the point of the agricultural revolution. You see this sort of idea. I had a friend call it the other day where you take a circle and you break it and you make a line. And I think that within that space, suddenly when you're looking at things from a linear perspective, hierarchy becomes a part of that linear ex mm -hmm. expectation and progress. The idea that we must be progressing towards the apex of, of what man has been ever at any point in history becomes a part of the story that we have been telling ourselves for a 
a very long time that we are we are progressing and this is this right now is the greatest generation we've made it the furthest done the best things mm. that have ever happened and so you have this sort of hierarchical view in, in multiple different ways you have the hierarchy of of species i think in many ways and you have mm -hmm. a hierarchy of of evolution and this idea of progress which you know i think makes some pretty strong arguments about what progress is and what progress isn't. Mm. Yeah, it's funny right now where we have the progressive movement, so-called, um, but so many aspects of it feel really degenerative. So it, it, it's confusing. It's can, The language has gotten very confusing. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. But I, I do want to say that when you're talking about that progress that you're talking about reminds me a little bit of like um, the behavior of an addict is like this because it can't ever they can't ever stop because if they stop everything catches up so the addict is always having to move forward grasping to try to yeah. not let all of the sins of the past catch them so imagine you're like uh you're on a road and you're running because behind you that road's collapsing into an abyss and you can't ever stop because if you do you'll fall in that's more like what we're actually doing than really progressing. Um, and to speak to, and what, what I mean, just I guess that's kind of abstract. What, what I mean is we are progressing at the expense of the very systems that support all life, not just our lives, but all life. We seem to think that it's more important that we get a new iPhone out this year or maybe two than we actually take care of the like umbilicus that bonds us to the whole of ecology. Like there's this belief. And I, I've, when I first started saying this, I thought it was more metaphorical, but over time I've kind of come to see it as actually like, maybe it's actually true. I think that we have been so inculcated in science fiction from my earliest memories. I mean, the first film I remember is star Wars. Yeah. I grew up with this idea that we could travel the galaxy. Mm. Like I didn't understand then how far away a galaxy is from here. Like we're in not. a galaxy, right? So we're in an arm of a galaxy. And so the closest star is separated by interstellar space. Like what's it take to get to Mars from here? That's in our own solar system. We share a star. That's like a three-year journey with what we can currently even like imagine. The idea that we could go through interstellar space or intergalactic, the, the distances are incomprehensibly vast. We don't have anything like the kind of technology that would allow this, but we, we foster this belief that not just that we could come up with the technology to do it, but that a human being could live away from the earth mm -hmm. and all the bacteria that live mm -hmm. here and the fungi that live here that are that we're symbiotic with, that yes. we could just live without animals and running water and trees. Like, no, 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 we'll be fine. We can just live in a biodome. It's like, I don't know. Can we, do we even, has anyone even, do we even know if that's true? I know they put some people in one of those biodomes and that didn't go very well from what I understand. Um, so I don't even know that we can do that. Like, can you get away from the magnetic and radiological forces of the earth? Do you, do you know, can you move away from this tight band of like electromagnetism that we live in with the relationship to the sun and all? Like, I don't know how capable we are. I know when astronauts go to space, even for a short time, they come back and their bones mm -hmm. are ready to fall you apart and they can't density. walk massively outside of gravity, right? So 
maybe you can hack every one of these things and find a solution, but I'm not sure it's possible. Well, and I think that there's a question, can you thrive within that space? But I don't think right. we even understand how interwoven we are into the places that we live in. I don't think we understand Correct. the complex interaction between our microbiota on our on our skin, in our guts, everywhere, and our place. We didn't even know there was microbiota no, no. until so recently. In, I was just listening to a description yesterday of Semmel Weiss saying, maybe some of these women are dying in childbirth because we we do dissections on cadavers in the morning and then we go birth these babies in the evening. Could we be possibly is that could that be causing death? That this was a, just what a hundred years ago. Happened. Yes, just happened. Yes, just yeah. happened. Yes, so so we don't know what we don't know. No. And the other thing is, is I for sure personally can say I have seen far more science fiction imagery in my life than imagery that depicts the interrelatedness of species. Yes. So I grew up seeing it with my own eyes, like people in space, people traveling to other planets and traveling on ships. I mean, the number of films alone that I've seen that depict that. And I'm not saying like that there's some agenda there, but I'm just saying that it, it causes you to believe this stuff is real so that it appears that the progress we're after, if you really ask yourself, because I've spent so much time sitting there thinking like, what are we, what are we doing this for? Like, where are we trying to get to? So many people I know would like to do what you're doing is just sort of like tend a piece of land, have relationships with other species, produce their own food, kind of get out of that rat race. So many people want to do that. It's like, why are we at like breakneck speed and what are we trying to do? And as you follow the line of thinking, it's like, oh, we're trying to get off the planet and, and go out into space and we'll destroy this planet to do it. I've wondered a lot. I'm curious to kick this to you. I think a lot about the universe beneath our feet, right? You have 1 billion mm -hmm. microorganisms in a single teaspoon of soil, miles of fungal networks in a shovel full. <laughs> and here we are looking at the cosmos because in many ways, I think they're, they're above us and, and in that mm -hmm. hierarchy. And so we look to that space. I think that there is a transparency that we can see the stars in the sky, but we can't see this micro universe that exists all around us. And mm -hmm. within that is an ease of imagination that there, there aren't really any barriers to entry of imagination of what happens above, but there, there are some barriers to entry on what happens mm -hmm. below and imagining this deep inner space. I think a lot about, did you ever see the movie powers of 10 in high school? Mm -mm. Uh, no. it's, you know, play it in biology class, right? And they zoom out, you know, powers oh, yeah. of 10 yeah, yeah, yeah. all the way to yeah, outer yeah. space. And then they come back yeah, yeah, on the yeah. couple in the picnic all the way uh -huh. down to electrons in their cells. Mm -hmm. Super cool. And I think it's harder to imagine those relationships in some ways. Mm -hmm. But when you're in them and you're seeking that out, I like to think for me that that has been more fantastical than any imagery of ships flying through space and in star yeah. wars or or whatever that yeah. is yeah i'm trying to think of who the author was that i heard describe uh, i think it was the guy who wrote ender's game mm -hmm. is that orson or scott, scott card, card? Mm -hmm. yeah he was talking about when he was publishing and he said uh, you know i'm trying to figure out if he was in fantasy or in science fiction and he said fantasy has trees 
and science fiction doesn't have trees. Uh, like if you look at the picture on the cover, you know, yeah, because uh, you're like, you know, does Lord of the Rings fantasy is there stuff? It's like that's fantasy, mm. and so the the fictional depiction of what you're talking about is more that like fairy realm lord of the rings middle earth kind of thing where it's like an interest in the relationship of different types of species that's like a that's a hallmark of fantasy fiction Hmm. versus science fiction which is extremely sterile and tends to focus only on homo sapiens living in an extremely like clean hospital-like environment in space you know so there's these two proclivities. I mean, honestly, I think both of those things are useful and important um, psychological tendencies that if we had yeah. balanced nicely within ourselves, we probably would be really good because having spent a lot of time, you know, wrestling food out of the wild, uh, I'm in many ways grateful that I don't have to live like that all the time. You know, there's many things about the built environment I like. In particular, one of the things that excites me is um, you know, there's pretty good evidence now. It's like animals, mammals in particular that live in a zoo will outlive their wild counterparts significantly. The problem is they're in captivity. And so you have to weigh that because the farm environment, as you know, is really different. So in the farm, the animals in captivity, but they have an extremely abbreviated lifespan. I mean, if you're going to eat an animal, you typically aren't going to let it live, what, six months to two years, something like that. It's very short window. We raise older right. animals, but yes, in general, it is okay. a shorter window. But even still, you're yeah. probably not like, hey, let's raise this one to 15 no. before we eat it. It's like no. not probably going to happen. Uh, but in the zoo, the the goal, because the goal is observation, the goal is keep the animals alive as long as possible. And then also to try to create habitats that sort of replicate at mm-hmm. least a little bit for the mental health of that animal. So you're like, hey, let's put the gorilla in an enclosure that kind of looks like gorilla habitat and has maybe some running water, some trees and plants that it can eat or play with at least. And we'll try to come up with food kind of like what it eats. And and you create this environment that that at least on the surface resembles its natural habitat. And you'll get this animal to live a lot longer mm-hmm. in captivity. Uh, the zoo is kind of like, that's a possibility for us here. We are living pretty long lifespans now. There's a lot of possibility, not just living, but you could thrive. You know, my, my mother-in-law is 80 and I, I, you know, she just started working out last year. I mean, she's amazing. No no real significant. I mean, I think if you live a very, very long time, you'll live, you, you, you'll die with degenerative diseases and Mm -hmm. you don't have to die of them, but you will die with some of them for sure. Um, but she's, it's just amazing what's possible now. (laughs) But how free are we? Because our environment that we're in now is not a zoo. It's a farm. The goal is work you really, really hard. So your labor is the produce that you produce and your tax dollars are your produce. So you're like a livestock animal, less like necessarily butchered for food. Thank God we're not being eaten, but we are more like a draft horse in a sense. Like you go to your job every day, you're trained for 18 years and then you go out and you do the job. And when we're done with you, we're done with you. It's up to you to figure out an exit plan because there isn't one like put there for you. So, so I think we could really look at our current environment more like a, a factory farm for people in their labor and their tax dollars. That's unfortunate, but I think it's a more accurate assessment if we had to pick, like, is this more this way or this way? Now, a lot of us have these, like, um, kind of utopian ideas, like, man, we could really turn, like, bio-utopian ideas, Mm -hmm. um, not like the sci-fi utopian ideas. 
that we could turn this place into such a, a, an abundant paradise, like a permaculture paradise, that we could theoretically still have these really, really long lifespans, but be really healthy and be happy. Now, that's possible too. Unfortunately, there's some far, human farmers around who they don't, they don't really like this idea for us. Like they have a different idea because they want to own livestock. You know, I'm not, uh, just to be clear, and I'm sure you know this from my work, but I'm, I'm, I'm like pretty anti-communist, anti-socialist. Like I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. But I hate being in this binary where it's like, oh, so you're, then you're a capitalist. It's like, well, I live in a capitalist environment and I make that work for me. But capitalism refers to capita, which means head and and it's mm. essentially a reference to head of cattle. So the idea of capitalism was always how many head of cattle do you have? Mm. And then later, you know, also chattel, which is human slaves. How many do you own is a, the marker of your wealth. And so today capitalism is still going on and the the best capitalists have a lot of employees and to employ means to knowingly or willingly go into someone else's scheme because a ploy is a scheme and M means to knowingly or willingly go into. So when you're an employer, you have roped other people into your scheme and they become like chattel. And, and obviously like as an employer, I try to be a really good one and I try to treat people really fairly and make people part of a great community to, you know, and all of that, because I'm trying to work with what we have here. But, but at the top, top, top of this are people who I think do kind of look at human beings like they're farmable. And we, those of us who are living in that, people like yourself and myself are like trying to figure out how to convert this into more of a zoo. Mm -hmm. The challenge is trying to figure out how to do that in a way that also balances the needs of all these other species. Because, you know, the idea of species going extinct uh, at our hands is so shocking and horrible and horrifying. I mean, this these millions and millions of years of collective evolution and then you know, I, I'm so saddened by what happened to the passenger pigeon. Not just saddened, but I, I think about, um, I mean, for your listeners who don't know, I mean, the passenger pigeon was a, a dove native to North America that flew in such massive flocks that when they would go over your, your town, they would darken the sky sometimes for days at a time. And they would land on trees in such huge numbers that branches were breaking off. And, and native peoples here lived with them, harmoniously with them for a really long time um, and obviously ate them too, but just didn't wipe them out. But Europeans got here and I mean, they were firing cannons into the sky, just at random blasting them out of the sky, you know, selling them into the marketplace and eventually caused the extinction of those animals, which has massively affected our forests, which all evolved in the presence of yes. tremendous amounts of bird feces, you know, that it is no longer present and it's changing the dynamics of our ecosystems. But we pushed this animal that it's hard to even imagine. It's like bison on the ground used to be, but in the sky. Yeah. And we caused that extinction. It's like we had to live with that sort of almost like species guilt. It kind of sucks, you know, the idea that we could keep doing that. So, so I, I'm saying all this because it's like the, the human farmers, I say with air quotes, I mean, I'm being kind of vague there, but those folks, there's not really like much room for ecology in their world. They're not necessarily caring so much about that. And then when we get really on our own thing about like how we want to change the world in positive ways, sometimes we forget about all of these relationships. And so it's like all of that has to get balanced in with whatever future we create because it's not just like, oh, sad, the passenger pigeons are gone. It's like every time one thing blinks out, it destabilizes this, thank God, incredibly interconnected, resilient system. Yes. But a system that can only, like any system, can only take so many changes to you know, the nodes 
the nexus points. And as you start pulling those things out, things destabilize and become chaotic. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you said a couple of things and I think I'm always a little shy of the idea of utopia. I think that Mm. I like to be careful about my ideas around (laughs) around reaching a utopian state um, Uh because I don't think that is something that we can reach. I think that, you know, Mm. the the goal is more integrated and less perfected. And I'll just add that that utopian movements tend to become mass murdering movements. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. A lot of eugenics come out of utopianism. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that there's this idea, you know, I mean, I come from from the idea of regenerative agriculture and it's how can we build an environment that is interconnected into systems that are put in place with this hope. Mm-hmm. And I think that we often fall short of that hope that we can see in a holistic viewpoint, all the players within an ecosystem and, and build a space where we are honoring all those parts of the whole, and they are working together in a symbiotic way to create that environment. And so as we look at this space as humans, where it's like, yes, I want to get back to a more natural space in the world as opposed to this built world, but I still want some of the the built world in it. Mm-hmm. And so how do I balance these two things? It's an interesting model. And I want to actually go back to something that you said, which was this idea of this addict where you kind of have the ground that's dissolving behind mm-hmm. you. And one of the one of the interviews I actually returned to that I think was one of the first interviews I ever heard you do was with Daniel Quinn, because it was just such a mm. such a wild thing. And so I actually I, I picked up Ishmael before um, before this interview, just to kind of touch back in that space because it had been been a really long time. And I pulled this quote and I think that this kind of encompasses this idea that we're we're running and, and the road is kind of crumbling beneath us. And I think that for people like you and me, we're looking at this loss of biodiversity. We're in the sixth mass extinction event, but we're also looking at a loss of biodiversity of skills that we have carried with and I heard mm-hmm. you and Dan Flores, 40,000 generations of hunters mm-hmm. and something that we could lose faster than I, I think we might think and, and yeah. farming coming yeah. into that. But this quote, you know, from Daniel Quinn is you're captives of a civilizational system that more or less compels you to go on destroying the world in order to live. You are captives and you had, you have made a captive of the world itself. That's what's at stake, isn't it? Your captivity and the captivity of the world. Yeah. Oh, that's heavy. Yeah. It's hard because the, there's, um, again, people don't always understand what we come from. And there's like a cartoonishness about people's ideas about the past very often. Mm-hmm unless you've really immersed yourself uh, either in something like you're doing practically, like actually living it or academically really having been through the literature and anthropology and biology, it's like in archeology, span it's really hard to have a clear view. So people might say something like, well, if you feel like that, why don't you just go to Alaska and live in the wild? <laughs> and it's like, because humans need groups of like 30 to 50 people yeah. to do that. They need massive land bases that don't have um, fencing and trespassing yeah. and borders, um, to move about because we need to, there's with very few exceptions, there are some, but very few exceptions, hunter gatherer groups, you know, 
need massive land bases because they're moving around all season to go from place to place because as a forager, even in the modern world, I know that what I need each season happens in different places, in different ecotypes and ecotones. And so to get to all those places, I'm running into signs all the time telling me to stop. You know, We see this really easily with bison, with the idea of, well, why wouldn't we just introduce bison back into the plains because they're a keystone species? Well, obviously, because there's a lot of fences and they have these mm -hmm. seasonal cyclical migrational patterns mm -hmm. because they yeah. depend on different forage and foodstuffs throughout time. Well... We're, we're not any different than that. Yeah. We're pretty similar. Yeah. And similarly too, I, I spoke to, um, a Lakota, uh, bison rancher a couple of years ago. I went out there to harvest a bison for our television show, Wildfed. And, um, I'm interviewing, uh, this man, Ron Brown Otter. And I say, cause he used to raise cattle and then he transitioned over to bison exclusively. And I was like asking him, what are some of the differences? Why are the bison better for the land? He's like, well, cows are lazy. <laughs> they stay in one place. They keep using the same ground. They tread over the same spot until it's denuded and they ruin it. It's like the bison just go and they carry seed and, and they rub around and then they go to some other distant place and they move those seeds over there and the, versus the cattle. Like, like, so it's like similar like us now. We've become sedentary. So I think the average person today hears the word sedentary and the word means like couch potato to them. Um, you know, sedentary lifestyle, like I sit on the couch Netflixing and I'm not, I'm not getting enough movement, but sedentism initially, it refers to people groups that settle into towns because of agriculture. So of course, as you know, the agricultural revolution, so-called Neolithic revolution, you know, begins something like 10, 12,000, 14,000 years ago. And people go from that semi-nomadic lifestyle of moving through, you know, it's not like they just traveled endlessly, but because there was other people groups. So everybody's bounded by all these people groups. Like something we're now understanding about North America, as we re we piece the story back together, so many people, 90% of people here roughly died of European diseases very early on after the first Europeans came here. So as in the first Europeans came, I mean, there's a, quite a stretch of time before the pilgrims come. By the time they come, it seems like, well, this landscape's pretty open and empty. But before that, it wasn't at all. So it wasn't like you just roamed endlessly. You had your winter area, you had your summer area, your spring area, but that was your territory that you defended and protected and lived in. So you, you were semi-nomadic. That's not really an option when you're growing your food because you kind of need to be there because like what we said is those plants become domesticated and then they require that soil fluffing all the time <laughs> and you know in order to keep them happy right yeah. or else they'll die so versus like if i have a patch of choke cherries that i'm harvesting wild choke cherries i don't have to be there to tend them like they tend themselves in fact they don't need me at all so uh, when i come back around they're there fruiting they don't need me to do any of that work watering them fertilizing them or anything like that. But if I'm going to put wheat in the ground, as you know, I'm going to need to be there to do a lot of work. It's a lot of labor. In fact, the archaeological records really clear that this is a, a really hard thing for us to initially adapt to because of the, the, all that bending over kind of work was created arthritic conditions in people. And there was a lot of malnourishment events that happened, especially early on in agriculture, because it's really hard to have a famine and wild food. That's maybe another thing people don't understand. There's this sense of, well, people in the wild were always on the edge of starving to death. It's like, no, actually, that's just not true. Uh, it might look like that today, you know, because what, what year were you born? 1988. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is that? What is that? Well, laugh? <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. well you're, you won't remember these. Probably, you're right. But... Are you my husband's age? My husband was born in 1978. Yeah, I'm 78. Yeah, cool. Cool. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> so extreme. So um, when I, when we were growing up, you know, there was um, commercials on TV a lot of times about giving money. To, I mean, you might remember these giving money to kids in third world countries that, that were, are starving, and they'd be like, just for the the cost of a cup of coffee, you could feed a family. You know, one of these yeah. kind of things, and they would show these pictures of kids with like bloated bellies and flies on their faces and stuff. And I grew up on flies on their eyeballs. I grew up thinking, oh, that's what people are like when they don't have civilization. <laughs> I didn't understand. No, those are people who had, those are the remnants of people who had extremely productive landscapes and life ways who were marginalized and pushed off their yes. land by agriculturalists. And now they live in bad lands where they can't produce enough food, similar to many native peoples here who are on reservations that are not their traditional lands. And they cannot, and now it looks like, oh, they suffer from poverty, but it's like they weren't suffering from poverty. It's just all their stuff and land got taken. And they, they could no longer, the things that made them ultra healthy and productive are no longer accessible. So I think a lot of people imagine, oh, hunter-gatherers, they were just starving to death. It's not only were they not, they were very famine resistant because like even when I think about like it's March 31st today, so we'll be going into April here. Pretty soon the spring foraging is going to kick yeah. off. And there's the plants that I, I'm real excited about foraging. Me too. They have a, a bigger return calorically. They're more abundant. They're more hardy. They just are more filling and satiating. There's also all the plants that I know I can forage, but I'm just not as interested in. Hmm. But if somehow like the crop of fiddleheads failed, I know that I can go get at the trout lily and the, you know, these other plants that are in that same area. They're just not as desirable, but I'm not going to starve because I know all these other foods. And if it gets real bad, I can eat the inner bark of pine trees. It's like just really not very desirable, but I'm not going to starve. Agriculturalists traditionally put all their eggs in one basket yeah, and what would happen is- not very well diversified, right? So, the, so that all those nodes that you have in the foraging life are gone. And now if there's a crop failure, which there often is or was, uh, people really did struggle and go hungry. And that was, you know, I, we've largely solved that through globalization efforts of, you know, our food supply. But that was a, so far, that was a real, <laughs> that was a real issue, you know, in the, in antiquity. And so, yeah, hunter gatherers were definitely not starving. We add very productive. That's why we're here. That's the other thing that's weird to me is that Thank people you. think, how could, it's like, doesn't make sense. How could we have had a failure to thrive? We just limped along for 300,000 years in the most intense environments through an ice age mm -hmm. and through, you know, the longer I live, the more time I have, okay, the less I just want to believe fantastical things for the sake of it um, and the more clear-eyed I get. And yet, one thing I can't shake, because when I was younger, I was attracted to a lot of very alternative ideas, you know? Mm -hmm. I guess a full disclosure, I'm an alternative person. Uh, right? so yeah, well, you I and case, me both. Can't tell. Yeah, so uh, I, but I'm pretty drawn to this idea that that cataclysmic events might be the undergirding of why we're mad at mom. Um, and there's this idea of something like 14,000 years ago, 
some pretty heavy um yeah the younger maybe impact events that happened here yeah that were changed climate and that mm. um that maybe had caused some extinction events yeah. and really put human beings through and it might be the cause of this species-wide amnesia that we seem to have because we can't really remember what anything is out there we're like we still can't figure out the sphinx or the pyramids you know mm -hmm. like we <laughs> we don't understand why there's all these massive civilizations that suddenly mm -hmm. come out of nowhere we're very we can't remember it it's uh, funny you it, asked daniel I, quinn this like why do why do we have this propensity to say oh maybe aliens dropped down and and made the pyramids mm -hmm. and it is that that cultural amnesia this this yeah. forgetting keep going sorry yeah well i i think one trap i fall into constantly is i'm very very immersed in and inculcated in the current scientific archaeological and anthropological belief about the linear timeline of human development and you know that's that thing of like we're, you know modern homo sapiens emerged something like 300,000 years ago they leave africa you know 55,000 years ago and they make it over to australia and they push up into europe and then 14,000 years ago they get to north america and then around that time you know different domestication events happen and the neolithic revolution begins and you know there's this whole timeline that we have mm -hmm. and and this quest to find the fossils to prove it mm -hmm. and all of that um and it's plausible except for these just except for these structures that we find all over the world they're like man that doesn't really fit with the story very well it would if we could see how it was done if it was like oh yeah they just those pyramids yeah you just move these stones 300 miles like how did this happen where right? we don't know how it happened and and it leaves us a little bit it doesn't fit with the full narrative yeah. and so i think something happened and i think that might be why we said we're willing to put ourselves at massive risk we're willing to degenerate ourselves we're willing to radically alter how we do things in order to create a kind of stability that flat line we initially talked about was like we can't deal with these massive oscillations like if if comet particles of comets are going to smash into the earth and cause you know nuclear winters well then okay it's worth it let's do some yeah. radical darth vader level interventions in order to to, to make ourselves stable uh, that's Weird a tangent no that's a that's a good tangent and i think that's really interesting as a a point where we're mad at mom and <laughs> i hadn't considered it from that space i know that one of the things that i think a lot about is here we are trying to recreate history. And I think you covered this. Like I said, I listened to too many interviews with you. So I don't know. I don't know who <laughs> you were talking to, but um, <laughs> you were talking about archaeological sites and, and Clovis. It might have been with Dan Flores. And we haven't uncovered everything and we keep pushing back these events. Right. Yeah, and we keep yeah, we keep hilarious. finding more. And it's it's not as if there aren't massive amounts of land that are unexplored or as you said, you know, coastally that are now underwater yeah. that we're never going to find because people like to live on coasts. And the water's getting deeper and, currently. Right. Too. And, and so yeah. one of the things that I think a lot about is that here we have this very linear view and kind of take us back. We have this very linear view and I think it shapes the way that we shape our historical perspective. And I think we mm -hmm. are so, so to use your word inculcated in that viewpoint that it is hard for us to even get out of the walls and the boundaries of that to look at history or archaeology or anthropology through a 
more cyclical lens, a less reductive yeah. lens. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, I, I want to just speak quickly to that Ice Age piece, and then I want to come back yeah. to what you said about what you just said. Yeah, just so people know what we meant, it's just that um, you know people do tend to live along the coast, and we've just come out of an ice age, and we're currently continuing on that same trend line and that it's warming. And that means that the ice and the ice caps continues to melt and the permafrost continues to melt. And as that does, the ocean levels rise as that water runs down into the sea. And so all of the archaeological sites along the coast get flooded and they're probably flood, you know, some of the best stuff is probably 300 feet underwater and, and maybe obliterated. And it's really unfortunate because that means when we find archaeological sites, they're deep inland and they're not necessarily representative of what the greater bulk of those sites would have been had we been able to access them at the coast. So we're piecing stuff together. And I think one of the fatal flaws for me of science, because uh, obviously the scientific method is incredible in many ways, like it really is in mm -hmm. many ways, like mm -hmm. some of the things that we used to think and do, you know, can you imagine having like heated liquid mercury put on your, your, I don't know, like your what would be the, what is it like chlamydia or sores or something, you know? And they're yeah. like, Oh, the answer to that is hot liquid mercury. Yeah. Or like, Oh, you know, bleeding you is the, like yeah. you're sick. And they're like, we're going to bleed you. It's like, thank God. Like we figured that out. But the, the problem with the scientific method is that it's so evidence driven that things don't exist until they're shown. And that means that you have to then be like, well, this is currently what's true. Mm -hmm. And then a site gets found and then what's true suddenly changes. And so I, I often joke when I started doing what I do now, the Homo sapiens were 200,000 years old in our current form. Today, as we do this interview, we're 300,000 years old. Wow. Well, that's pretty significant, right? Well, that's a, yeah. That's pretty significant. 33%. So, yeah, it's a pretty major thing. So, I mean, what will we find out next year and in 10 years? And what about when we have better ground penetrating radar and we can, you know, sites like Gobekli Tepe were found not long ago. So before that, like the oldest sites that, you know, we're like, oh, civilizations are 6,000 years old. And then we're like, oh, maybe they're 14,000 years old. Well, this stuff radically alters our timeline. So yeah, it's a pretty big deal. Anyway, going back to what you're saying about, about the sort of linear nature of things, it's interesting when I've, again, just hearkening back to my friends at Standing Rock, Lakota and Dakota people, and, and not just them, actually, many indigenous groups, when you look at their homes, uh, they're not squares with 90 degree angles, very, very rarely, but they're circles most of the time or ovals, hoop houses and things like that. And they talk about living in the round and that the idea, like the idea that energy can move properly in a 90 degree angle kind of structure to them is like, doesn't really make sense. So you see this kind of teepee style design or this wiki up design, or again, this sort of longhouse design, the big oval with rounded edges. Um, they weren't, they were cyclical thinkers. So the circle represented completion. Uh, we're into this linear thing. I mean, we literally call ourselves the human race as if like we're trying to get to the a finish line somewhere ahead of other people. Shit. And I, I think that's really fascinating because you've probably heard this uh, in people who, who read uh, Sapiens will, will remember this, that mm -hmm. uh, like 100,000 years ago, there was multiple species of humans on earth. So yeah. humans, just quick, quick biological refresher for listeners, humans are any species in the genus Homo and and there's 
you know, we're Homo sapiens sapien, which is the domesticated form of Homo sapien, which is like the hunter gatherer human. But, you know, there was the Neanderthals, right? The Denisovans, um, there was the Florencians. There's just all these different kind of in that Lord of the Rings-esque style thing where you have like, well, there's those are the elves and those are the dwarfs and these are the humans. And there, it was sort of like that. There was all of these species of of Homo on the um, planet and at multiple there at the same time. So, you know, you and I both probably have some amount of Neanderthal, you know, you look at like your, your European descended. So guessing you have some Neanderthal um, mitochondrial DNA, mm -hmm. most likely, right? So people have up to 3%, which means even though we're homo sapiens, we're, we did hybridize with another species of human. Um, and then when you go to Asia, you see Denisovan genes and people there because th that species um, went east. And so there were a whole bunch here. We don't really know what happened. We certainly know we did breed with them, which is kind of a wild, mind-blowing concept. Incredibly some survive in us in that way but we usually what you'll hear is we out competed them again it's a human race. A race so those are all types of humans and we won the race mm -hmm. and now here we are now we're not done racing we're gonna go until there's no species left and we go to mars it's like it's this incredible like linear thing you know and and you know as an as like as a sort of weekend warrior athlete i um it's been interesting over the years, like when, uh, with running, for instance, I love to run and, um, I learn, I had to learn to run properly the way homo sapiens run, because the way you run with a pair of Nikes on isn't how homo sapiens run. It's like, and what it is, is like, we've, we've taken sprint, you know, race style sprinting and tried to apply that to running. So you, you hear about like, uh, and it's incredible that human beings routinely were running 100, 200 miles. There would be people who are runners who would go between city states, you know? So if like you're the Inca and you need to send a message, you send it with a dude who's going to run 200 miles and deliver it just like our ultra marathon, ultra runners do today. But they weren't wearing Nikes. So they ran with a shorter gait, more on the mid sole of the foot. It's a different running style. It's more like this rather than that lean forward, quick, long strides where you smash your heel against the ground with every step because you have that big, you have that big pad. It allows you to. If you take your shoes off, try to run like that, you're going to blow your knees out. Um, similarly, I'm going on a swim workshop um, later this month because I can swim. I was a lifeguard, but I've never been comfortable in the water because the way I was taught to swim is a racing style swimming method. And it's not comfortable if you're like me and you're not buoyant. So I'm going to learn a style of swimming that I think is more innate to how the actual human animal swims because we have to relearn all this stuff because we've been racing. Everything is racing and it's that progress thing you're talking about because the fastest ones win. And I just don't understand like where this leads. When I look out, like I put my metaphorical binoculars and I look like out into the distance, where it seems to be leading is so uniformly not good that I don't understand how seven plus billion, is it eight billion people now are all on board with a plan. They don't even know what the goal of it is. I'm struck. I hadn't thought about the form that we take when we run, when we swim and how maybe even that has been mm -hmm. inculcated in our worldview, right? That mm -hmm. 
we are so tied into our environment. And I, I think that our environment here, right, we can look at the natural world, we can look at the built world, but we can also look at a sort of conceptual intellectual environment and how our viewpoint as a, as, as a culture shapes even the form of our bodies and the way that we utilize mm -hmm. them. And mm -hmm. that an idea of linearity of racing of competition could mm -hmm. even begin to change the natural running gait or swimming mm -hmm. style of a human is a little bit yeah. I, I, yeah. I gotta sit with that one for a minute um yeah well and and unfortunately oh sorry go ahead no no go ahead i think part of what's happened too is that I think there's this perception again for the untrained in this discipline. There's this perception that, well, before civilization, you know, because it's funny, like the men of a civilization are called gentle men. That's really interesting, gentle men. And the idea is, well, we were barbarians, right? Like we must have been oh, yeah. really awful. And it's like, well, that actually turns out not to be true. No. Mm, it's kind of true, but it's not fully true. It was not just like men dominating everything. It was a men and women did, women had a, a very strong voice at the table in most stable indigenous cultures through time. And it's really in civilization, as you mentioned, in that hierarchy where that starts to get eroded away. Um, I'm a little confused what's happening right now because the trajectory of women's rights was like really incredible. It was like working, working, working. And now it seems like a lot of biological men are now crowding women out of their own spaces and women seem to be like clapping for it in a way where you're like, yeah, but then like, like if the, if the best women athletes can't win in their own sport, like it's very confusing where we've gone because women started to get like a really good voice at the table. And now it seems like they're they're at risk of losing it to some degree back to men who are going to somehow retake those spaces, but in a different form. It's very strange to me. And it's under but, the guise um, of progress. I mean, just to, just to this is, under yeah. the, this is right. the most progressive view. A very progressive. Yeah, it's a very progressive view. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, versus, by the way, I think a really interesting way to consider the what we call conservatism. This is also interesting because... Um, if you think of somebody who's like, I, I believe in um, human beings having a powerful relationship to nature the way we always did. Well, that's an incredibly conservative view because conservatives are trying to keep stuff from the past. Today, when we hear conservative, we think Republican, but really to conserve versus, and the other side of that is to progress away from those things. And I think, again, we want both of those things. Like I, I, you probably have heard me say it, but I always say we have two wings on a plane. Like I don't want to be in a one winged plane. So I, I kind of want to be in a plane that has a left and a right wing. Um, and I think this is, it's not a terrible model for government. It's just, I like the idea that you have opposing views. One of the things that, that seems obvious to me is that in any civilization and prior to that, in any culture, you would have had, because I, I don't think that it's just these these viewpoints, if somebody identifies as a conservative or identifies as a progressive, I don't think that that, I don't want to say progressive, let me say somebody identifies as liberal or somebody identifies as conservative. I don't know how much of that's chosen and how much of that is sort of nature's whim, because it seems like you want roughly half-half and the anthropologists say that conservative individuals protected the tribe from new stuff coming in that would change the culture, affect the children, and bring in foreign diseases. 
But the liberal people in the culture made sure new ideas got in, ideas and, and technologies could evolve, and new genetics got in, mm -hmm. so you didn't inbreed yourselves into a gen genetically shallow pool. Mm -hmm. So you want liberals and you want conservatives. You don't want them at war, that's for sure. That makes no, no. sense. And you don't want this thing... Unfortunately, progressivism isn't really related to liberalism. They're not actually the same thing. Like it's sort of, that's like saying that, um, like sometimes the liberals currently will, will try to make it seem like anybody who's conservative is a Nazi. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that seems really extreme to me because mm -hmm. Nazis are kind of, maybe that's the farthest end of it, but the progressives are kind of like the farthest end of like liberalism gone mad. And the Nazis are maybe like conservatism gone mad, but it's like, who wants to be out in those outlying pools? Like somewhere in the middle, you want both of these concepts because it, you don't want to stagnate and you don't want to um, invite uh, your enemy in either. You have to balance that. But anyway, going back to my point, um, women were a really important check, I think, on this idea of it's all a linear race. It's all a com competition. It's like, that's- We hold a cycle. I know some incredible- we hold a cycle, yeah, exactly. and, I, and, and, and yeah. I don't. I don't want to yeah. say that you don't. Right, testosterone works on a on a circadian on a daily cycle. That the, mm -hmm. there is a there is a peak a in the morning. A sun rhythm. A sun rhythm. Women work on a yes. moon rhythm. Yes, and I think holding that moon rhythm because there is more of a, a consistent sine wave on a sun rhythm, but on a moon rhythm, yeah. there there are these bigger peaks and troughs to that wave. Yep. And 13 I, times a year. Yeah, 13 times a year. Would, and it fits with the moon and it, it could fit with a yearly calendar if we had made different choices. And we see that in our bodies. And I think to go back to this idea of living in a cir circular environment, so much of how we build our spaces and imagine even imagine our ideologies, because that's kind of where we're at right now. Even how we imagine our ideologies are born out of the relationship that we have to our environment and that worldview. And so when you have something, you know, in that quote, they talked about refrigeration breaks the seasonal cycle. Well, birth control broke the menstrual cycle in many ways from, mm -hmm. from where mm -hmm. I'm sitting. And so you see mm -hmm. these things that actually disrupt the cyclical nature of what it is to be human and how that viewpoint shapes, how our environment shapes our viewpoint and how our mm -hmm. viewpoint shapes even our biology down to, mm -hmm. to bring it back to that space of gait and the way that we swim. And so mm -hmm. within that, there is this feedback loop that is occurring. And, you know, you talk about this from a space of we're made out of the food we eat and the place we are, mm -hmm. right? Like that, that is informing our biology. There's this conversation that's happening between the food we eat at a biological and epigenetic level as we intake mm -hmm. these nutrients from place. And so mm -hmm. all of this, all of this together is part of this feedback loop that I think whether we're aware of or not, we are experiencing. And I think in some ways you can look at it as a spiral, right? And sometimes maybe we're spiraling outwards or we're spiraling inwards. But I think even within the, the binary of liberalism and conservatism and these pendulations that we're seeing, and I think that pendulum is swinging 
further and further out to these more extreme edges of that. But what if it's not a, a pendulum at all and there there are more options and it's not just mm-hmm. that, yeah, yeah. that space. There's a false dichotomy <laughs> that's called, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and to your a couple things, I want to talk about the calendar and time. Um, and I want to talk about this idea you just mentioned about food and wh- what you're made of. Yeah. And I also want to talk about first though, this thing about the spiral you just mentioned, because uh, a spiraling inward is a constructive event and spiraling outward is a destructive event. So, you know, you think of um, the formation of a galaxy as an inspiration. So to spire inward, a spire is a spiral inward is inspiration. And then to spiral outward is expiration. That's the thing dying. So if a galaxy is dying, it starts to spin outward. It expires like your food expires. <laughs> and when you inspire, it spirals inward. So um, this is kind of an interesting, a lot of it's embedded in our language. So um, again, to your point about the calendar, which is very astute observation, because there are 13 months in a year, but now we only have 12. So one of the things that's happened is our calendar has taken us off of, of the natural cycle. So um, like most of us live by today, what's called civic or civil time. And then there's natural time. So uh, if you've ever played with a, um, a sundial, which is a very powerful human technology, it's unfortunate people think about, oh, that's antiquated. It's First of all, it's not antiquated and it's incredibly effective. Um, all the archaeoastronomy stuff holds today. And in fact, our astronomers today don't really like to admit that they still map the sky using the earth as the center of the universe model. That's still how we tell you where something is in the sky we use still the same ancient model of the the earth is flat kind of a view it's it's funny this idea of a celestial and a terrestrial sphere Uh, by the way i in no way i'm like a flat earth person i don't mean any of that i'm just saying the archaeoastronomy holds and um we that we're always going to come from a viewpoint we have to be tied to it's very hard for us to be because otherwise untethered untethered from a viewpoint or a space right. or a point what in are we going to put an yeah. eye in the sky and we're going to map yeah. from some okay. random yeah. point in space no we we start at earth and we look outward just like the ancients did now when you look out from the earth i know we have more planets in our solar system we know now but we can see seven celestial bodies that's why we have seven days in a week and that's why they're named after those celestial bodies so you have the day of the sun we call it sunday you have the day of saturn it's called saturn day you have the day of the moon it's called moon day then you get into Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Woden's Day, and Thursday's Thor's Day, but those are those are other languages. So Tuesday, I believe uh, in French, I think is um, Mardi, Mars. Mm-hmm. Then you have Wednesday, Woden's Day is um, Mercredi, and then Freya's Day. Freya is the goddess of Venus, but in French, it's Vendra Day, mm-hmm. Venus Day. Um, and so our days of the week correspond to planets. The months of the year are moon cycles. There aren't 12, there's 13. But we used to base everything off of this observation of the sky, uh, which is really fascinating. And as you said, a, a man's cycle, his testosterone cycle, is kind of an annual and daily cycle that's based on the sun. And women have a cycle that's based on quite clearly i mean any man who's married to a woman knows like her body and the lunar cycle are very tied together and uh, that's this beautiful balance and and it's so cool because one of the things that makes you this this gets like freaky like wait a second what is this place we live in because the sun and the moon are vastly different size Mm. yet when we have a full solar eclipse and the moon 
passes in front of the sun just right. This is so weird. It exactly is the same size because the sun is 400 times larger than the moon, but the moon is 400 times closer than the sun such that they appear to be equal sized bodies in the sky. And in the summer, at the summer solstice, the sun is the highest in the south in the sky that it will be all year. And the moon and a full moon at that time of year is the lowest it will be in the sky. And then in the winter, it flips at the winter solstice, the moon is the highest and the sun is the lowest. In other words, there's this perfect balance between these two celestial bodies, how they tug at the tides, okay. how, they, um, how they affect the earth. And it's a beautiful model for what the relationship of men and women could and shouldn't was at one point. But um, today, we're, we live in a solar dominant culture. I mean, we light up the, the night. We, we resist the dark. And I was in Peru once. Uh, I was at a museum and I was looking at, it was the bottom floor was indigenous art and the top floor was Christian art, you know, because there'd been this conquering that happened there, Christians conquering it. And I'm downstairs and I'm like, oh, this, I get what this is. This is the sun religion being conquered by another sun religion. Cause, cause, cause Jesus is the son of yes. God who rises on the third day and he travels with his 12 zodiacal signs. Mm -hmm. He calls the, the disciples. And it's this, it's this very clear sun yes. myth, right? He's the light of the world because he's the sun. So it's like, it's really funny because, and he's on the cross, which is the four seasons. So the cross represents the equinoxes and solstices of which there are four. And so we make a cross to through the circle of the year and we pin the sun on there and that's the crucifixion and his dying and going into the underworld for three days, of course, references what happens at the solstice. And that's why Jesus is born at Christmas time, which is the winter solstice and all this stuff. So, so we're a sun religion that went around and conquered all these other sun religions. I mean, this is stuff is hilarious how it works. Uh, tragic, but like there's something there. So anyway, um, one of the things that's happened is, and, and back to civic time versus or civil time versus natural time. Like in natural time, what's really interesting when you put a sundial out um, and you face that thing south and it casts a shadow through the day, the way it works is the sun always every day rises at six and every day it sets at six. And when the sun is in the south every day, that's noon, high noon. So, uh, and and by the way, that line, if you were to look into the, to the south, if you went outside and just faced south and you imagined a line from the ground all the way up through the heavens to your zenith directly overhead, that's called the meridian line. And so when the sun is left of that or east of that, it's anti-meridian. And when it's past that, it's post-meridian. That's AM and PM. That's what that means. So AM is anti-meridian. The sun is east of the meridian line. And when it gets across, it's post-meridian. Meridian. Now, of course, days aren't equal in length because of seasons and it changes where you live. So what ends up happening is in the summertime, what's an hour of time is longer. And in the winter, an hour is shorter. And what we've done is we've made everything uniform again. So we're back to that flat line, that straight line where everything is uniform again. And one of the, there's benefits because what happens is everywhere you are on the earth will have a different time based on its location. So the way it used to work is your sundial telling you what time it is. Well, if you go 100 miles east or west and you put up a sundial, it's going to be a different time. So not everybody was synced up because everybody's time was local based. Now everybody's time is uniform, which is really weird if you live too far away from the center of your time zone because you're kind of in this weird mm -hmm. 
place where you're not experiencing time the same way people in the middle of that time zone would be. Or you end up with like my friend, Laurie McCarthy, who lives in Newfoundland and they have a, they're a one and a half hours different from me. So odd. So all of that stuff is this unnatural forced time space that we've overlaid over natural time. And now people have forgotten natural time. It's massively disempowering. Yes. And um, there's so many little, go ahead. We're, I mean, the, the way that we view time governs the way that we act in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we're running from like appointment to appointment to appointment to appointment, all in this rigorous time thing because we live like animals in a zoo, sorry, in a farm who, who've got to produce our product really quickly because, you know, this is an economic environment. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's just, to me, it's so wild. All, all of it, the way it's embedded right in front of us all, everywhere. Again, I'm not trying to say it's like this massive conspiracy. This has played out over thousands of years. So if it is a massive conspiracy, you'd need beings capable of living really long period of time and rolling out a really big plan. So I'm not saying that's what's happening or maybe it is, but what, what is clear is that all of the things that connect us to nature have systematically, we've changed them and we've replaced them with something close, but just a little off. So nothing lines up right, but hidden in plain sight is the language of all of it that explains what it all was. And yet the average person will hear Sunday and never think of the sun. That's, crazy, right? I think there's this, this is how I tend to think of it. And, you know, maybe, maybe it is all some big conspiracy, but I think there's almost an emergent property where we have been in yeah. service to I this agree. idea for so long that there is almost mm -hmm. this organism of human consciousness that is driving this based on these ideals that have become so deeply embedded in society. Mm -hmm. And I think that oftentimes there isn't even a point of recognition where you pull back and have some perspective and say, oh, maybe maybe this is just because of the way that we're viewing all of life and, and mm -hmm. we're so indoctrinated into that viewpoint yeah. that we can't get outside of our own myopia. Yeah. And, and because it's a race, the challenge is like that uh, if somebody wins a race, then you're like, well, they were somehow superior at the thing because either they had better strategy or they had better tactics or they had better genetics or something like that. Right. So they are better. So that's why they win. And so what's happened with the um, in particular with the conquering of so many indigenous groups, you know, and it's reprehensible thinking today and so hard for us to understand, but Europeans were thinking like, well, we're obviously doing it right. Cause we keep winning. Yeah. You know, and now we're at this point where we're coming to like a reckoning moment. Where we're like, wait, and we're all kind of turning back to these ideas that come from indigenous groups or, or other traditions, because we're like, we're starting to realize that, that we're we're like um a competitive athlete who who worked so hard to become so good at what they did that they sacrificed their relationships and they sacrificed like basic joys and they they haven't gotten to ever feel what it's like to just enjoy something in a relaxed way because everything is so regimented and time-based and they got to move from thing to thing to thing to thing and then they get to a certain age and it's like oh man like i, I didn't even watch my kids grow up kind of a thing I think we're kind of like that where we're realizing, oh, this Western paradigm is leaving us like mentally ill and emotionally unbalanced and we're destroying our own home and we're destroying our own world and we're destroying our bodies. And like, we got to look somewhere else now because this isn't, this isn't like working, but we're like looking back on all these, we're trying to like pull stuff from, from devastated traditions and crushed cultures, you know, and it's a, it's 
where it's like, oh, we weren't the best. We were the most willing to go to the furthest length. So again, like I made a Darth Vader <laughs> joke earlier because it's like Darth Vader is willing to become that horrifying thing in order to carry out his plan. He's willing to become that. And he goes from Anakin Skywalker to that like thing inside the mask that he's like built out of machine parts and everything. It's like that. I'll go to any level to win, you know, and we've done that. We've been willing to give up so much of what is good in order to get to this what to get to what because what happens when we get to mars are we like this is it we're good now we're now we're happy it's like no progress now we got to get to jupiter we got to keep going you know it's never gonna this this thing doesn't stop if you let it run its course i actually want to bring this piece in and and this was something i wanted to talk to you about and it's interesting that you bring up darth vader i had another podcast with some friends of mine <laughs> that he another nerd he yeah just my life is full of great nerds um he brought up this idea of latent archetypes like Darth Vader, um, like Voldemort and Harry Potter that are carrying with them this fear of death and that so much of what mm-hmm. they do could be looked at through this lens of being driven by a fear of death. And one thing that comes up a lot on the podcast is how our divorce from death, whether we've, you know, put this in in hospice and and we don't see our our human loved ones die. I just did a, a podcast on home funerals and how to how to care for bodies and bury bodies uh, and outside of the funeral industrial complex. But I think that there's this idea, and as a butcher and somebody that kills all of the food that I eat, that death actually roots us back into part of that cycle. And I was listening to the podcast with you and Philippe Grenade Willis and <laughs> wow, guy. you were talking about how much that moment of death with an animal, whether you're looking at it, you know, whatever language you want to use to harvest, to kill, brings you deeply back into the real world. Mm-hmm. And that there, in that moment, and I think you said something along the lines of "you can't, you can't bullshit me." In that moment, because it yeah. is so real, yeah, yeah. like it is so real and yeah. it is so present. And so, as you yeah. talk about this, this never-ending line of progress, I think that one thing that nature offers us is the idea that there is no growth in perpetuity. And, and that is, mm-hmm. in many ways, what that progress without end, without goal, that race to, to where. When you put death back in the equation, there is no race. There is just a chance for all the things that were once one dissolve back into mm-hmm. many. Yeah, if we could put emphasis on that again as a culture, I think that a lot of this race would end because... That is what we're trying to do ultimately, right? We're trying to outrun death. And then I think it's one of the major goals of the medical sciences Mm -hmm. and eugenics Mm -hmm. too, you know, it's trying to create life extension for the elite and it's like a, a fear of dying. And, um, you look at many other cultures and what you see is there's, there's almost an embrace of it because it's like, I'm going to be with my ancestors. Mm -hmm. And that's like a really different view. Mm-hmm. And one of the, huh, 
I'm sure you've thought about this. It's kind of like, uh, is it better to entertain the idea of the afterlife to, in, to engender uh, an embrace of death? Or is it better to do the cold hard math and be like, no, it's just over. And then watch people scramble to to do anything they can to like freeze their brain in liquid nitrogen with the hopes of coming back because we can't we can't know so it's the greatest mystery. This is so interesting to me with all we've the fact that we know so much about subatomic particles or um, interstellar space and and you know we can find exoplanets. I don't know if people get like often talk to people about this like. We can't go to space. Like oh, we are, we go up into the space stations in Earth orbit. It's not in space. We can't, we can't go into space. It's ridiculous. We can't. We have no technology to go to space. It doesn't. We don't have that. We yeah. we go up in upper Earth orbit. Yet we can see exoplanets. We can't see them. We can detect them. Yet we don't know what's happening when we die. Like oh my goodness, this is completely unexplored terrain. Um that fear of that unknown creates some weird pathology psychologically in the world. And I think it's a big part of it. And it's interesting to note how recently you go back in history to a place where every person would be constantly seeing death <laughs> around them. And I don't just mean like pre-agriculturally because like you're saying on a farm, you, you're seeing death all the time and you also are anticipating death all the time because the birth of an animal there yeah. is essentially the beginning of a death process that's going to happen. And then, and then you're thinking out further like, well, geez, maybe we're going to bury ourselves here too. And, and all of that stuff is just woven in. And so, you know, there is research showing that the more you contemplate your own mortality, the more mentally healthy you'll be. Um, so what's happened now is that people are completely removed from all of this Oh yeah, yeah. This That's is like pretty, this stuff's pretty well established too. Um, so what's going on now is that we have for a, for several generations we've we've been especially in the last couple of generations completely removed from death, such that it's like when I walk in the supermarket, I always remind myself that every single food item I see is a body part mm -hmm. of some living creature, mm -hmm. whether it's plant, animal, fungal, algal this stuff and and it can be refined to the point that it's unrecognizable and it's now it's a cracker or something you know i don't look at a cracker and see a recognizable body part but realistically what am i seeing well i'm seeing the seed of a wheat plant or a barley plant and that seed is part of its living tissue so it's a body part and then that thing has been refined down and repurposed into a cracker but that's body parts just like you know if i found a pig's foot there or a chicken's liver there i mean those are all those are more clearly body parts but kids today don't necessarily understand that what they're seeing is body parts i mean because it's all compartmentalized into all these different pieces and wrapped so nicely and and ultra changed and so um built built into our diet this is like this thing that's hard to re reconcile for people that we're predators, you know? Yes. We are predators. We are killers. And, and that's okay. Yes. You know, and, and you don't have to hate anything to kill it as you know. Um, but that's not clear to people who don't participate. You know, they don't know that they, they assume that you must be cold and heartless to kill, even though they too function are functionally predators living off these same things. Yes, they, but, but they've they, outsourced. They, don't know, right? they have outsourced, yeah, outsourced the killing mm -hmm. 
to, you know, yeah. I mean, within yeah. within the industrial agricultural complex, right? Like, I mean, you're talking about 15 to 20,000 animals that get processed in three shifts per day. And so how many, how many people are responsible for those deaths? And I think mm-hmm. that that is an incredible burden to put on someone. No, I can't. And as somebody, person? I mean, when we go through a heavy processing day, if I go out there and I process five goats, there is there's a myriad of emotions, right? And and there yeah. is some weightiness to it. There is some There's weight blood on your hands. There is literally. some joy. There is some uh, exhaustion. But yeah. I think it connects you back into something so real. And I, I want to offer and, and kind of kick this to you. We have this idea that there has to be an afterlife or there has to be a nothing. But there is some evidence of something that happens at death. And that's that all of the constituent parts that make up the idea of of this vehicle, of whatever it is that we are, the nitrogen from our blood, the phosphorus from our bones, right, the potassium in our flesh, the minerals that once made up our cellular processes, then dissolve back into the earth and Mm. become a part of a cycle that is unending. And then you have, Mm -hmm. you know, you have mycelial networks that liberate minerals from rocks that we could say came from the singularity that burst forth from the Big Bang. And we're just cycling all of these throughout time. And so death doesn't have to be either or it can just be this transformation of the matter that is us that was once our food that we were eating the plants we were foraging the game we were hunting and the you know the oxygen that came out of you know the plant in my office that is becoming a part of my tissue and my carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. will become that and and so there is this interconnected relationship between all of these things in death. And I think that that point of being somebody that take being a predator, taking life closes that circle for me. It takes that line and it, and it clearly makes it a circle because these things are just, I am made up of food, right? And uh, you, you say mm-hmm. this so much more beautifully than I could, but I am made up of food and, mm-hmm. and then I'll make up soil that'll make up more food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're saying that pretty well, I think. Um, yeah, I, you know, like you mentioned too, I mean, some of those plants in your room for sure have tissues made out of carbon that you exhaled as carbon dioxide and they inhaled and they, and they utilize that carbon to build actual tissue. I mean, it's like really fascinating to me. There's also this emerging science now of looking in the sort of humus and fulvate in the planets, like in our, in our soil, and then finding ancient DNA. This is so cool because they can go to a lake bed now and they can be like, oh, there were mammoths here. And they don't have to find tusks or bones. They can find the Hmm. DNA. In other words, your DNA doesn't just – like when you die, your DNA doesn't just break apart actually. A lot of it Hmm. remains at least sequences enough that you you could be discovered thousands of years later. That's fascinating, especially if your DNA is any kind of like a – kind of like an antenna or something, or at least it's a, it's a, it's a packaged blueprint. It's pretty cool that that can go on for a really long time. Um, and I'm fascinated by, as you mentioned, like the funerary industrial complex, the desire to make sure that we don't return is also 
super disturbing to me. Very. I mean, this idea of like concrete box with another box inside the box, and then all of these pickling chemicals yeah. to make sure that like, no matter what, we will not allow ourselves to return. Because one thing that's very clear to me is all everything that I'm made of is I'm borrowing exactly. from this yeah. ecosphere. It's all borrowed material, you know, and like one day I give it back and, and, you know, I can't take any of it with me. It's just, it's got to stay here and it's got to get used by the next generations. And so uh, I've got to return mm. it. And so the idea that your last thing you do is like, fuck you, not going back. <laughs> and then he's like, I will not let anyone use my parts. You know, it's, it's, um, it's like that thing I said about being angry at your mom. It's like, mm. it's like your last act is to make sure that you don't even return back to the cycle. Yeah. You know, that's, we've come to that place and we're, Ever since I was little, I always saw, I always saw cemeteries, and it felt like it was such a weird waste of the space. It's like, man, that's like, what? Do, why do that? I don't understand. Like, we'll let the bodies go back in. You know, I, you know, I mean, I think it's put a rock there. Okay, great, but like, do, you, do we need the bodies to be preserved inside boxes like that? And and then now I know how toxic it is actually that those cemeteries, all that stuff leaches eventually yeah. right into the ground there. It has the concrete to. breaks apart and you poison the earth with it too. So it's not even like my last act is to try to restrict myself from going, being eaten by anything, but then it's also like, and I'm going to poison a little bit more too. <laughs> it's just wild to me. So uh, I love what you're talking about because um, the, the idea that there's now that we can do this at home is amazing. Uh, that's really beautiful. Um, I got to, uh, so a couple years ago, um, there was a, my, my wife had a friend at our wedding, a family friend uh, named Chuck, and he came to the wedding at age 92. Um, and he, he, there, she's Canadian. So, um, laws are different up there and they have, um, medically assisted suicide there as an option for people. And, uh, I think that some of that gets a little abused, but anyway, that's there's side, some, side note. Uh, there's but, a great but, article yeah, about some, that as a slippery slope. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. It, I agree. I agree separate issue, but, but Chuck was 92 and everyone around him had died and, uh, he'd lost, you know, all his friends were gone and it's just him. And he felt he was becoming a bit of a burden to his family and he was ready to duck out. And so, um, he had been at our wedding and I, as a consequence was invited to this. And it was like a very strange moment because I'm, I'm in the room with this man who I, I know a little bit, but not well, um, and all of their family. And I had never, I had seen people die, uh, cause I've worked on ambulances and stuff. So I've seen people die and, you know, I've done CPR and lost people and all of that. Mm. But, um, I had not watched a person go willingly before and I've lost a lot of friends to suicide, but I was not there ever, yeah. but I watched this man fortify himself just before it was incredible because a doctor comes, a doctor and a nurse team came in and they have to first you know, it's a very intense emotional experience in the room. Um, everybody's saying goodbyes to this man, but like we're, it's in the living room, you yeah. know? And uh, then they show up, the medical folks, and they got to check in. They got to make sure he's not being coerced. They got to make sure he's not on drugs. They got to make sure he's willing to do this. So there's this moment and they start injecting him with stuff. And right, but right before they do, I watched him start to panic. I just, I kept for a second, there's just a briefest second, but I saw it in his eyes of that moment of like, wait a second, I don't, I, what am I doing? And then he went, okay. And then they started 
And I just watched every, I was really trying to pay attention to the physiology because I could see his pulse in his neck, you know, when I watched that stop and then I watched his body start to tighten and then I watched it relax and I watched, you know, the whole process, like getting to be there with it. And that was such a gift because something I've noted over the years is that very few humans watch anyone come into the world and watch anyone go out of the world. Mm -hmm. That's like reserved for this medical Mm. priesthood almost who get to watch the whole process. And so in addition to that, we've been taken off our time and we've been taken off our diet and we've been taken out of our natural environment, all those kind of things. The sacredness of life is less obvious when you know, you don't see the miracle in the beginning and you don't yeah. see the miracle at the end. And so um, typically if someone sees someone born, it's their own kids only. And then you, people don't talk about it that much. No. You know, it's sort of like this kind of- It's almost taboo. I don't know. It's a little taboo. And then- most people aren't present with someone when they die. And so something, some kind of gateway opens when you come out and some kind of gateway closes behind you on your way out. And uh, it's weird to me that we have dissociated so completely from it. Like you said about the, about meat and farming uh, that out to someone else to do the killing for us. Like we've pay someone else so we don't have to see it. Well, similarly, we're doing that same thing with birth and death. And so you have a, I feel so, I actually feel really naive. I just found out the other day, like I didn't understand the degree to which Gen Z kids are using pharmaceutical drugs, like especially with things like Xanax and things like that. I didn't, didn't understand that or the level of anxiety and the way kids are using sort of designer drugs now instead of maybe some of the more like kind of more fun drugs that we grew up around. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, it sounds really horrifying to me, honestly, like the, all, all this anxiety that they feel, but it's like, okay, you, you don't believe life is sacred. You don't see it start. You don't see it end. You have no connection to the natural world. You have no connection to real time. You're told that there is no meaning to life, yeah. that all that exists is science. Um, it's so bleak Oh, and by the way, uh, it's getting warmer out, so we're all dead in ten years. And it's your it's fault, like, also. By the way, yeah, 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 <laughs> it's yeah by like the way, definitely it's your fault. Your fault. <laughs> your fault. Sorry, we pushed you all onto this consumer model. Now it's your fault. Um, yeah, it it's it's pretty bleak. You know, uh, it's sad to me the level of anxiety that they have. So um, while it doesn't sound like a fun time to go watch someone die, or it doesn't sound like a fun time to go process five goats. I'm not saying that stuff is fun, but I'm saying that it will create psychological, emotional health in a way that very few other things can. I mean, it's kind of like an equivalent, I think, to just drive home how big the deal this is. Imagine if, and it's not hard to imagine this actually 20 years out from now, imagine that all reproduction happens yeah. you know, outside of the body yeah. and that it's more of a clinical thing and that it's more of a, um, a transactional thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a la like Gattaca, the film where it's like, well, let me see your genome sequence and my genome sequence and let's see how, and, you know, imagine if sexuality went to, cause we're already seeing where it's like, it's getting, it's not like when I grew up, this was this consensual thing that people did, but today it's like, well, you know, like consent form type. Oh yeah. Level thing. Oh, I mean a whole different so, level of so. whole different level, right? So imagine that and, and a lot more fear around yes. it and what can go wrong and what you can be accused of and how you, yes. you know. So okay, so imagine 20 years Insidious. out or 50 years out where and and note to the 
reduction in reproductive capability. You know, one, I, I come from a grandmother. One percent per year testosterone since 1960 with 50 percent drop yeah. in. Yeah. Sper- I mean, I have Shauna Swan's book sitting on my bookshelf, right? 50 yeah. percent drop in yeah. sperm counts, you know, and, and that's just looking yeah. at men. And that's just looking at men. And then women having previously been birthing tremendous numbers of children. The the stories that I hear of women who had 25 kids where you're like, you, I, it, it's astonishing that the, the female form can handle such things because yes. <laughs> it doesn't seem physiologically possible. But my mom was one of nine kids. At that time, nine was like a downgrade from what had been happening. Yeah. And then my mom had three kids and I have no kids. And so you can see the trend line again where we're headed. So we, from where we're sitting, could understand what would be lost, how crucial the thing that would be lost if, if all of that reproduction started to become a transactional thing that happened outside the body. It's really sad to imagine. Well, similarly, that's what we've done ar- around our experience of life and death and and removing ourselves from it. Obviously the making of babies is a more fun thing than killing, but like killing is like a pretty essential, we are a predator. Yes. So it's like, is a lion still a lion? If you, if you always throw at stakes, like part of, be, that's what, part that's of what this conundrum I brought up earlier, being in the zoo and living twice as long is would the lion, if it could choose, would it, would it live on the savanna half as long hunting with a, with a pride or would it choose a twice as long of a life being gawked at by passersby and eating, you know, ground steaks thrown at it or whatever? I mean, I think it would probably choose the shorter lifespan is my guess you s- in order to do its thing. You said that when you described you were summing up Rewild Yourself, your previous podcast, A Wild Fed, and you said, would a lion rather live free in, a, in the wild and die a difficult death or live twice as long in a zoo and be bored every single day? And Mm -hmm. so what does it mean to live fully in that? And I think that people like you, maybe people like me are trying to figure out how we sort of bridge some of these gaps, because I think to kind of begin to wrap it up and and tie some bows on some things, one of the things that I think you do so beautifully is you bring story into this. And one of the things Mm -hmm. I heard you say is that we have become illiterate to the stories around our food, but I don't think it's just our food, right? Like birth is this part of the human story that is inextricable to what it means to be human and would have been for millennia for a very long time so much a part of me not daily but but frequent life death is a part of this story uh the way that we hunt and gather and process our food is a part of this story and you said something where you talked about story as a nutrient well we are very Mm. nutrient deficient in so many different Mm -hmm. ways when it Mm -hmm. comes to this. And if we lose in this generational turnover, and and you talked about this with hunting, as as boomers age out of hunting, you know, are millennials picking up that mantle? Uh, Not at the same rate. And so what does that do to preserve hunting? And I think there are so many of these life ways, whether it's hunting or death or birth or farming or the stories of our food that we are losing Mm -hmm. as vital nutrition to what it means to be human, whether or not we're living in a farm, the zoo or the wild. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, um, all of us are attracted to different things. And so we, it's important that we all do our thing. Cause it's like, like farming needs to be preserved. Hunting needs to be preserved. Like foraging needs to be, they all do. And so it's like each person, I think, choose your passion and keep that thing alive. Cause we're at this stage. I have, I've often related it to the book, uh, Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Ray Bradbury. Or 51. Yeah. So uh, at the end of that book, of course, what, you know, as the books are being burned, what happens is each revolutionary memorizes one book and that that's their job is to carry that story because um, they're, they're all going away. I was, I remember <laughs> when the Amazon's e-reader came out and it was called Kindle. And I was like, you're shitting me. Kind, like to burn, like to burn the books. Like, really? Is that what we're going to call it that though? You're like, just going to call it that. It's kind of like when Apple's like logo where you're like, yeah, wait, the forbidden fruit, that's your logo. Yeah. Like you're actually just going full Satanism here. Like the, not just an apple, but an apple with a bite taken yeah. out. So we're clearly referencing that Adam and Eve story. Yeah. This is really demented to me. And it's right but there. Anyway, so that's uh, in front of you. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, this is some of what we talked about too, right? It's, it's right there. And I think that some of us are witnessing and looking out and being like, and especially over the last three years, but mm-hmm. this is, they're telling, they're telling you what it is. They're, they're putting a nice clean mm-hmm. little label on it. They're giving it yeah. a name that creates what it's, it describes what it's doing, what it's meant what it's to doing, do. Yeah. And yet... Have you ever seen that thing of like, there was the old vampire mythology, like the vampire can't come into your house without your permission. Mm-hmm. That was like old mm-hmm. old lore. Has to get you to invite it in. Yes. Or there's this idea, you know, in like summoning of demons where it was like, again, in these mythologies where it, it can't, like a devil can't just fool you, has to tell you what it's doing. And then we see these kind of, cause you said like it's emergent, there's emergent properties. It's like, um, whether this stuff is what it looks like or whether it looks like that, cause these are archetypical patterns and deep in our psychology that then are born out. So somebody has to be the Darth Vader. Somebody has to be the Hitler because we summon this through these, um, emergent properties of, of archetype that are within us. But, but regardless, these myths point to things that are immortal in a way, uh, ideas that don't die. Like the idea that evil has to first tell you, it can't just trick you. Uh, it tells you. And so you look and the agenda's in your face all the time and it's, it's being explained. And then you look and you're like, why is everybody on board with this? But then, but then we use it all too. So it's, a, it's, I don't know, we invite them in too, you know? Because we... Uh, I, I, this is a Mac that I'm on, by yeah, the way. Yeah, uh, me too, <laughs> me too. Not above it. <laughs> me too. Not above it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think you get trapped. I mean, to go back to that that Daniel Quinn quote, right? Like you get you get mm-hmm. trapped yeah. in this feedback loop where there yeah. it is almost impossible to escape captivity as you keep perpetuating captivity and i mean and that is a cycle right and to look at that Mm -hmm. as a cycle or to look at the fourth turning which is just the cycles that we go through generationally in a Mm -hmm. macro sense and and so Mm -hmm. i mean it at regard we are living within a cycle uh it's just not necessarily one we we (laughs) want to be in. Yeah. I mean, if I had to guess like where we are in this too, we're in this moment, this has happened a lot. This happened in Egypt and this happened in, you know, South America 
when it happened in Mexico, where, where you get to a point in civilization that you're so advanced and there's a class distinction between the elites and the people who are doing the day-to-day -day work and the people doing the day-to-day -day work can see signs all around them that things are not stable anymore, but the elites are seeing the growth of their technologies and the advancement of their plans so rapidly that they lose touch with what's happening in the base. And they look around them and everything is gilded and beautiful because mm. they've created that environment around themselves. So they think, yes, not only can it go on forever, but it's going to continue to progress. And then the whole thing destabilizes and there's like a collapse that happens. And so this is why there's no longer the Egyptian culture here. And this is why the Greeks are gone and the Romans are gone and the Mesopotamians are gone and the Babylonians are gone and the Inca are gone and the, well, it's actually not why the Inca are gone, but that's why the Maya are gone. So, um, so this, <laughs> this stuff uh, has happened a lot. Yeah. And we're in this moment where it's pretty obvious to me looking around that we're in a really, we're in a pretty tight spot right now because um, there's no longer new lands to conquer. There's nowhere else to go. There's no more space. There's no more, there, there's very finite resources. I understand like, so technology can always produce new um, unforeseen solutions. And so, you know, when we were running out of whales to turn into the, basically to fuel the industrial revolution, it was whale fat that lit the cities. It was whale fat that lubricated the machines. And, and we thought there was a panic. We're running, a, you know, peak whale oil happened. And there was like real panic about that because no one could have imagined petroleum. And now we're like, oh my God, the petroleum, like, and you know, what, what, you know, we're, we can't see yet what's coming, but these fixes are temporary yes. and we we seem to be running out of them. <laughs> and, um, in particular, I think where the elites have missed the boat really, especially is on the food piece, because, uh, those of us who really understand what food is know that this game can't be played forever. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to regenerate the landscape yes. at some point. We can't live off of empty calories forever. We can't live off of an, you know, there's a, at my farmer's market, there's a, um, there's a company there selling stuff where, uh, the organic farmer I work with is always like, look at the size of that zucchini. It's not organic. You know, like, like they got stuff in there that's too big, too plump, too perfect. You know, they're mm -hmm. cheating, you know, it's mm -hmm. just, that's not how big those vegetables are. Yeah. Like, that's not what those things really are. And I look at her who I know is like hardcore, the real deal organic and her produce just if you didn't know, you'd walk in, you'd be like, well, that stuff's crap. I'm going to buy this over here. It looks so much better. And I think that that's confused people. Like it seems like this can go on forever, but I, I don't believe that it can. And so I think we're at a real dire moment. And um, that's why in the style of, of Fahrenheit 451, I think everybody needs to memorize the story, not actual story, but like a, a skill, um, <laughs> something that harkens back to the past, because at some point we might need to like throw those things back on the table. And it would be a real shame if no one knew how to do it anymore. Um, we're pretty innovative, but, uh, it would be good to have like the more that we have going into the next, whatever's at the end of this, this is going to be a rough decade. Yes. You know, it's just going to be a rough decade. And it's amazing by the way, you know, hearkening back to the fourth turning that they knew that in the nineties when they wrote hey, that book, here. just by observation of cycles, like they, they did a pretty damn good job of summing up what this was going to be like. Um, and you might not have known it until about 2016 when all of a sudden, everything just went crazy. It just has gone completely mad. And, and I've been thinking a lot lately about the trauma of the 
COVID-19 experience and particularly the lockdown experiences and the shutdowns and all of that. Like this was a massive trauma to our civilization. Yes. This kind of thing to be nationwide where every human who has access to the technosphere was part of it. You know, I know there are some, you know, there's indigenous tribes maybe deep in the jungle who weren't affected, but for most of us were went through this thing together. Um, and it's so unprecedented. And the way we are right now, it's almost like somebody who's, let's say, let's say a person who, who's going, living a normal life. And then one day they're sexually assaulted and maybe something horrible, like a rape or like a forcible rape. Mm -hmm. And then after the next day, it's kind of like, okay, well, I'm just going to get on with my life. And they don't maybe have therapy. They don't have a support system. They don't have, you know, I've known people who've had this kind of experience and then they just go on with life, except that life becomes very dysfunctional because the trauma is so severe and so horrifying and violating. And they, they're, they feel so alone and unsupported that they, and I feel like we're kind of in a place like that where we've just come through this horrifying trauma. Now we're finding out that what we were told it was and what it was don't line up at all. Um, that the cure is worse than the disease in many cases. And we're just like, Oh, go on with life. Okay. Like back at it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and we haven't even reckoned with that. A, and there's, that's just one example. It's a collective freeze response, right? Like, I mean, if you think about yeah. what a trauma does to yeah. an individual nervous system and, and the ways that that can present, how is this presenting collectively? Because what I see is mm -hmm. a, a frozenness that is, mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, some people are unwilling to change their minds. Other people are unwilling to talk about it. We're pretending it never happened. Uh, all yeah. of the, all of these different responses are just kind of frozen. And I think mm -hmm. that, well, I mean, what's wild is the fourth turning talks about 2020 being mm -hmm. that space and, yeah. and talks about one of the options being a sort of a, a a disease, a pandemic that, mm, that sweeps yeah. the globe. And yeah. And then we come out of that, we come out of that sort of hibernation moment to a very different world. That's the other thing that's really interesting is many agendas were implemented yes. during that time. And now many. we come out and the whole landscape is different, politically different, socially yes. different, economically yes. different. It's all in this like radical moment of change that, that, that was seized upon and used to, to implement a whole bunch of things. And man, are we just passive in it, you know? Because everybody's, what do you say? What can you do? The, the okay. consequences are so high, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there were many things I didn't say that I didn't, you know, uh, uh, many things mm -hmm. I didn't do, um, despite consequences. But no. <laughs> that being said, you know, and I think what you're saying is there is this sort of sweeping taking away of agency. However, the building of skills, the transmission of skills to further generations, mm -hmm. the, uh, the inoculating yourself, right? This is the word that you use when you talk about the metaverse. Like this is, this is how we inoculate ourselves mm -hmm. is these skills, these stories, the meaning that we imbue our food with as we, as we interact with it. I think has the power to give us agency back that has been taken from us and to yeah. give us autonomy and sovereignty and ownership over this piece of us that is very human, which is yeah. to eat, to die, to be born, to kill, mm -hmm. to be a predator. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, like staying human is probably the greatest skill right now. It's like just staying human um, because there's a real pull towards transhumanism, and and ultimately it's it's an and and it's attractive in a lot of ways too. That's the thing is it's attractive, and it's also it's like well they have a car, I need a car. Okay, they have a Rolex, I need a Rolex. Like oh they they have a you know a Louis Vuitton, I need a Louis Vuitton. It's like that kind of thing. Like that's how it's going to pull at us. It's going to be very competitive to get <laughs> into the metaverse. It's going to be very, it's not going to be, oh, they're going to make you do it. It's going to be clambering to get in there because you don't want to lose your spot. And, and I think that, like you said, these things are antidotes. They're inoculations against some of that. Like when you have these skills, you start to be like, I don't even want that. I don't care yeah. about that. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know how it will bifurcate, but I know that deep inside I feel committed to staying human and to and to maintaining skills and to being useful. And um, hopefully we pass through this more easily than than the apocalyptic amongst us sort of imagined. But but I say now's a good time to be kind of ready for anything. I agree. And I think that you are doing such a beautiful job. And as you know, I'm looking at the time and I don't wanna I don't wanna hit your your Thanks. heart out. But um Thanks as I look at what you have built and the stories that you are telling, and I think that the TV show is a really beautiful space for this to, to invoke people's curiosity about mm -hmm. story and about hunting and gathering, but also about cooking and community. And mm -hmm. I, I had a whole piece on that, but I think that's important too, right? And you kind of traverse that in such a beautiful way and then have done so much deep storytelling with, with both podcasts. And I'm sure more is, is coming in the future. Thanks for saying that. I, I've never actually really thought of it as storytelling, but I, I appreciate how you, hmm. you're framing it that way. It is. Um, cause uh, I guess it is, but, uh, yeah, the TV show is a awesome opportunity for me to entice a young generation into nature yeah. a little bit. So I'm just trying to do a bit of a Pied Piper act and, yeah. and draw people into something that maybe looked redneck to them before. Yeah. And because I'm not, I'm not one of those, I'm, because I don't fit that mold. Um, it's like, Oh, that, that maybe that's something I'm interested in. And, and as you know, this isn't like a thing you overnight do. It's like you, you get interested in a little thing and before you know it, you find yourself <laughs> owning a farm yeah, or something, yeah, right? Yeah. So it, it, like you just, you just get drawn deeper and deeper. So I feel like all I got to do is just like, just get them over the edge. And then once they try something, they, they all fall in love with it. And it's far more interesting than anything happening on TikTok, you know? Well, thank you for telling those stories because I do think that they provide an inroads for the, the future generations, current generations to find a way into skills that might give them a bigger sense of peace, bigger sense of their humanity <laughs> thank back. Thank you. Really. And I really thank appreciate and, uh, it. I mean, yeah, I've been getting to go back over. I went back to one of my favorite interviews with you with of yours, which was with Doug Bach Clark, as you as you were talking about <sighs> whaling. I was just like, because that, that yeah, was all the time favorite heavy, right? interviews and is heavy. just so beautiful. And I do think that you have told so many fantastic stories. And I, I know you're not done. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you. So we Yeah, fantastic interview. This is really fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, we have a very comprehensive view of these things. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I did too much prep and we could have, I mean, I have, I have so much more we could have covered too. Um, and right, we'll do part two sometime. This was really important to me. So I thank you for yeah. doing this. This has been a long journey of listening to you while I fence, while I butcher, while I do these things. Um, <laughs> My absolute pleasure. Uh, really quick. I'll have all your things in the show notes where people can find you. 
Um, right. Do you want to talk about Sir Thrival really quick? Because I don't want yeah. to leave well, that yeah, out. Real, real quick. And we've used, sure, my you. husband has used the pine pollen for years. I, you know, oh, we've good. used the vitamin D and elk antler. Great. Yeah. So I have a nutritional supplement company I've run for 15 years um, called Sir Thrival. And so we've got a handful of very boutique products you won't find at like a regular health food store, that's for sure. And um, those include things like colostrum for immune systems and uh, a very special medicinal mushroom preparation we do, um, science-based kind of thing that we do with mushrooms that I think uh, yeah. a lot of companies aren't doing. Um, your pine pollen, which you mentioned, is our testosterone support. Okay. We're really excited about the black walnut protein powder. Mm -hmm. We just put out because it's a 100% hand foraged wild protein powder, which I think is just absolutely unique. So I'm pretty pumped about that. And uh, yeah, so so my company is surthrival.com. And then you mentioned the TV show Wild Fed, which we're on Outdoor Channel Monday nights at 7.30. And we're in our we're premiering up the last episodes of the third season now, but just getting ready to start shooting the fourth season. So super pumped to be going into another season of that. That's very and exciting. And it's fantastic. Um, it's really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like it's getting a lot better. You know, in the beginning, it's a little bit figuring out how to do it. Now we're in a really good rhythm. So I'm pretty, pretty pumped about this season that's just airing now and uh, very excited for the one we're about to shoot. But um, yeah, it's been a real blessing to get to follow my passion all these years. And um, I have left behind, I guess, two two podcasts now that both are right around the same amount of episodes, right around 175 episodes each. So Rewild Yourself, still, you know, up on... Uh, anywhere you get podcasts and then also um, Wild Fed Now, which we just finished, which is much deeper. You know, Rewild Yourself was more of a, a broad view of a lot of the things we talked about today, which is like human beings as a, I was exploring human beings as an animal mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. Wild Fed is more of exploring the wild food journey. And uh, I am kind of gearing up to go into a straight Daniel Vitalis podcast, which will just be me kind of without any limitations, exploring my interests, like which that. I'm very excited, excited about as well. About that so, too. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate well, that. it was it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.